0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. So how are you doing, Revolution Church? Woo! All right, I'll take it. I'm. There are a ton of people here. This is madness. I always forget, like the college students go away for a week and I'm like, oh, like there's still like a good amount of people there. And then you guys come back. I was like, man, we were missing out. But I did miss you guys, some of you. Um, Anyway, Um, so my name's Dave, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution, and I don't know why I left my hat on. I haven't done that in a long time. Um, I'm Dave, and I'm the teaching pastor here, and uh, I see a few new faces, and I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, What we're doing uh, this evening is we are continuing our series called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at how The Old Testament and all of its stories and all of its people really point to and foreshadow Jesus. Jesus himself said that all scripture points to him. He says that in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'm blanking right now on which New Testament writer said that everything in the Old Testament was a type and shadow of the one who was to come, referencing Jesus. So we're just looking at those texts and then seeing how that these stories all, in fact, do point to Jesus. And it's been a lot of fun so far. Um, Last week, we took a look at King David and his horrible sins. Uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrating her husband's uh, death, which made him a murderer. Uh, but then we saw in the end how God graciously called King David back to himself uh, through a prophet named Nathan, and that David repented and he went on to write the fifty first psalm uh, as a token of his repentance and a, and a scripture for us. Uh, but this week we 're going to fast forward a little bit uh, we're going into last week we 're in second Samuel this week we 're in the next book, First Kings. And uh, and we're gonna be checking out an account featuring Elijah. All right, you guys know Elijah? Raise your hands. So I'm talking about about almost everyone. So Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Um, he was one of the more notable ones. Not that they weren't all important, but like he's a he's a pretty notable guy. Uh, mainly because, uh, for us at least, God used him in one of the three ages of miracles. Uh, you had, like, Moses and Joshua being, like, one of the, like, the first age, and then you have Elijah and Elisha, which we're going to get to, Elijah and Elisha, second age, and then we have Jesus and his apostles being the third and final age of um, the miraculous gifts and things like that, um, and, and that's why we tend to remember Elijah, because he, he was a part of some wild stuff. Uh, fun fact for you, this is pretty cool, Elijah means my God is Yahweh, which I thought was really, really cool, like, Jah is just, like, short for Yahweh. Um, and if you don't know who Yahweh is, I'm not talking about a different God and I'm not weird. Um, I am weird, but not for that. Uh, Yahweh is, uh, is the proper name of God in the Old Testament. Anytime you ever see capital L-O-R-D, like all caps, Lord, it's actually Yahweh in the Hebrew. That's God's personal name. So Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. Um, and God used Elijah greatly as a prophet. Um, he used them to confront uh, a king, King Ahab, that we're going to look at, um, God used him to raise someone from the dead, to heal people, um, and to call the nation of Israel back to faithfulness to the one true God, Yahweh. Uh, but tonight, we are going to be looking at the showdown that Elijah had between uh, himself and the prophets of Baal. This is, this is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Um, Baal is a, is a false god. We're going to talk about him a little bit more later. Um, and we're going to see how God, using Elijah called his people, called the, the kingdom of Israel to repentance and wholehearted devotion to himself. Right, so the text this evening is, is really, for us, a call to radical commitment to Jesus Christ. Right, that's what this has to do with us. It's a radical commitment to Christ is what we're being called to. Um, and I know that sometimes as Christians we fall into um, a spiritual apathy, you might call it, uh, where, where our hearts have just kind of grown cold towards Christ and towards his gospel. Um, We also have a tendency uh, to submit to Christ only in part, only with certain aspects of our life, but not the whole life, certain aspects of our mind, but not our whole mind. And this text this evening is going to remind us that that kind of half-hearted discipleship is an absolute abomination to the God of the Bible. Um, you know, to, to paraphrase a much better preacher than myself named Alistair Begg. Um, Alistair Begg, told, uh, well, one time in this actually, prelude to a song I was listening to called Regeneration, um, he, he says that the, the call of the gospel is not to the sinner to add a little bit of Jesus to your life. It's not to add a bit of religion to a life that doesn't really love God. That's not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is to do a complete about-face from the way that we once lived and submit all of who we are, every thought, every deed, every word, in complete obedience and allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what the gospel calls us to do. Christ cannot be your Savior if He is not your Lord. Yeah. Period. And Christ is Lord of everything. Peter says that God raised him from the dead to prove that he is both, both Lord and Messiah. Both Lord and Christ. He is indeed our Lord. And if he's not our Lord, then we can't really call ourselves Christians. But with that being said, my prayer uh, all week, uh, I've been a bit nervous about this sermon. Uh, my prayer has been that you all will receive this sermon well. And see what areas in your life that need to be turned over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And I always say this, it takes six days, right, for me to get a sermon together, every pastor, because we have to take the beating first uh, before we can say any of this stuff with any conviction, Um, right? So I hope that we'll see what needs turned over to the Lord Jesus and then be encouraged by the gospel. Then be encouraged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by the grace of God towards you in Christ and have our hearts greatly warmed toward Jesus so that we will all gladly, with a thankful heart, submit ourselves more to him. Not just external obedience. God's not about mere external obedience. He wants submission from the heart. A heart of thanks and gratitude. So with that said, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this text. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Spirit of God, please move in us this evening. Soften our hearts. Break our hearts with the demand that God gives of us, that we would give Him wholehearted allegiance, break us, show us what's wrong with us and what's right with Christ. Reveal to us hidden sin in our life. Reveal to us areas that we have refused to give over to the Lordship of Christ. And then please stitch us back together with the Gospel. Spirit, please do a mighty, sovereign work of grace this evening or all of our efforts are worthless. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, cool. So, a little bit of background before we get into the text. I don't just want to drop you in and have you guys have no idea what's going on because we're, we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18. And no, I'm not going to read all three chapters to you guys. Breathe. You'll be fine. Um, but this is a, a time in Israel's history uh, whenever the nation is politically divided. Right, you have the northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel, which it was made up of ten tribes, and then you have the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And just so you know, Judah is the rightful lineage of kings because that's the, those are the heirs of King David, right? But the nation's politically divided, and at this point in history that we're going to jump in with Elijah and King Ahab, uh, at this point in history they have been divided for about fifty years, right? Uh, oh, another stuff you need to know. Thought of this, sorry. Uh, the first king of Israel, of the kingdom of Israel, uh, was named Jeroboam. You're going to hear him referenced in the first few verses we're going to look at. And he led the people into idolatry. Uh, ironically enough, as if the nation of Israel didn't learn anything from what happened in the book of Exodus, uh, he, he fashioned two golden bulls for them <laughs> to worship, right? Remember the golden calf incident? Uh, yeah, but King Jeroboam made two gold bulls to put in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. And he did that because. Uh, The temple, God's temple was in Judah. It was in the city of Jerusalem. And King Jeroboam did not want the people of the kingdom of Israel to have to go into Judah. Because he knew in his heart, if they have to go to Jerusalem, they might form a friendship together again. And then the whole nation will be as one. And then me not being the rightful king, this is not going to go well for me. So he sets up idolatry. Um, Again, two gold bulls. And the account that we're in starts with King Ahab, who is a descendant of Jeroboam. And he does the same But worse. So let's check this out. 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. Uh, Also, if you're new, there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home, but it's going to be up here on the projector as well. Verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. More than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him, right, so Ahab is trash, right, he is a, just a trash king, um, again, he's from an ungodly, line. I know, it's kind of funny, I'm sorry, I don't know how else to say it, uh, he's, a, he's an ungodly king, maybe that's a better way to say it, he's trash, whatever, um, but again, he, so he's walking in the sins of Jeroboam, he's leading the nation into idolatry, but he's doing it... Um, more so than any other king that's come before him, right? Saying that, uh, verse 32, that he erected an altar for Baal and the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Um, he's making this like the, the official religion of the nation is Baal worship. He's the king and he's leading them in there. And if you're wondering what an Asherah was, an Asherah is yet another uh, kind of a shrine to a false god named Asherah because they were original. Um, but again, I think the crux is that Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than anyone So by leading the people into this idolatry, this worship of Baal. Baal is a false god. Yahweh has just had enough. Starting in verse 1, chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Right. So the Lord is so angry with the idolatry going on there, with the worship of Baal and Asherah and all of these false gods that the Canaanites, that's the region they were living in, that the Canaanites had, that, that uh, Ahab had introduced into Israelite worship. He's so angry that he says, yeah, here's a, here's a drought. All right, this is God's judgment and punishment on the nation of Israel because of their idolatry and turning away from him. He said, there will be neither dew nor rain for years until I tell Elijah to pray and I will make it rain then. So again, this is the judgment of God. Verse, or Chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So it's been three and a half years of drought. Just Think about what that means for a minute. Three and a half years of drought. People are dying. People are thirsting to death. People are starving to death because where there's drought, there's famine. I'm sure people are killing each other for food, killing each other for drink. Uh, just... Again, this is the punishment of God. This is the judgment of God upon a people who are idolatrous and refuse to submit to him and instead turn from him and turn towards a false god that doesn't even really exist. So this is some serious punishment. And now God says, Elijah, it's time. To, I'm, I'm going to end this now. We're going to bring some rain, but you have to go confront King Ahab. It's also good to note the, the courage that Elijah must have had as a prophet. You know, King Ahab and Jezebel have had prophets put to death um, who have come and, and confronted them. And God tells Elijah to go to him. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel or sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him; but if Baal, then follow him." And the people did not answer him a word. I think that's keep that verse in mind. That's, that's so important. So Elijah said, Ahab, it's time to put an end to this. There's about to be a showdown between my God and the false gods that you've led the people into worship of. Bring 850 prophets of these false gods together against me, and we're going to settle this once and for all. But that verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Bear that in mind. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for He is a God. Either He is musing, or He is relieving Himself, or He is on a journey, or perhaps He is asleep and must be awakened. Funniest verse in First Kings, I might add. Right? Like, what kind of a God is this? Like, Elijah's going, My God neither sleeps nor slumbers, and He needs nothing. He can always hear His people. Is your God in the restroom perhaps? Is, that, he's, is he preoccupied, right? Occupado, is that on the sign up there in, in Baal's realm? That's just hilarious to me. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's a false god. Hours. Elijah gives them hours and Baal does nothing because Baal doesn't exist. This God they've been worshiping. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. I keep thinking of Thor, right? Like another... Um, yeah. And they did it a third time And the water ran around the altar And filled the trench also with water All right, So just Elijah's doing this He's, he's saying okay uh, Let me just make this even more difficult Right We're supposed to call down fire from heaven Right That's our God's supposed to do that Baal did nothing I'll tell you what Soak my offering down so much That you can't even catch a fire If you put a torch to it Right so much so that the, the, the trench that he dug around it is full of water. The water has drained off the altar off and offering and filled the trench. Elijah's doing this so that no one can say that Elijah has deceived anybody and secretly set fire to this. He's saying this must be a miracle because the wood is soaked through if this thing catches fire. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. It's astounding. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And that's the text. There's a lot of stuff going on there. It's heavy at the end, which shows us the the, the price of rebellion against God and refusal to worship the living God is is death. This is the foreshadowing of the eternal death that is hell should we continue in our obstinacy and refusal to worship Him as the living God. But I think we see in this text, I'm trying to look at it big picture, right? Because we're looking at a big swath of Scripture. We just read like 50 verses roughly, um, or 40 verses roughly. We see in the text, I think, as a whole, that Israel's big problem here is idolatry, right? That's pretty easy to see, right? They're worshiping Baal, a false god of the Canaanites, right? Baal is actually a god of, or a supposed god of storms. Storms, lightning, fire, rain, right? So it's actually ironic that they're worshiping a god of rain and then God strikes them with drought, Right? And God does that for a reason, right? God is a great comedian, uh, does irony, ironic stuff all the time in the Bible. Um, but their big problem is idolatry. But I think that if we push deeper behind just a surface level, this is idolatry. I think that we can see that it's not necessarily that they completely rejected Yahweh. They didn't completely reject the God of Israel. But rather, they tried to supplement worship of the true God with the worship of Baal. Right? And I say that because chapter 18, verse 21, he says, How long will you go limping or wavering between two opinions? Implying that they go back and forth between the living God and false gods, and Yahweh and Baal. They keep running back and forth, back and forth. They're trying to supplement the worship of the living God with the worship of a false God. So holding that in mind, I think that the real problem here is a divided loyalty that the Israelites have. Again, the people run back and forth between the the living God and the false gods of the Canaanites. Their hearts are clearly divided. And this is a continuous problem in Israel all throughout the Old Testament. We can can read all of the prophets. They're constantly saying, uh, Isaiah in particular, Turn back from the Baals. Don't worship Baal. Worship Yahweh. So it's a back and forth all the time. But the problem of divided loyalty between God and other things is not specific to Old Testament Israel. Right? It's not just particular to them. This is a very, very real problem for us, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And there are, there are, listen, there, there are a ton of ways that this can be preached on. We can talk about finding security in something other than the Lord. This is a ton of ways that we can talk about having a divided loyalty. Uh, but one in particular came to mind on Monday when I first read the text and just would not leave me alone that I think that our church needs to be addressed with specifically. And remember, I, I took the beating first. <laughs> all right? When I think of divided loyalty, when I think of the idolatry of Israel, I, I think of this for us specifically at Revolution, that, that we are not turning over all that we are to Jesus. Instead, I, I, see, I see this... Um, and, so, and some more than others And myself as well I'm not up here to sound like a self-righteous person I'm a sinner in need of the gospel just as much as everyone else I'm not nailing this 100% um, But I see that, that sometimes Some of us, we want to compartmentalize our lives And what I mean by that is I will give these certain aspects of my life to God Like I will, I will read my Bible But I won't give Him my time in prayer Or uh, I'll give Him Sunday where I go to church But Saturday is mine Where I will do what I will Right? Compartmentalizing. God gets some of our lives, but not all of our lives. But specifically, when I think of divided loyalty, I think of this. Not radically pursuing holiness and obedience to Christ in every single aspect of our lives. And this is, this is so open-ended. Right? This is so open-ended. So I'm just going to give you guys a handful of examples of what I mean by that that we don't submit all of ourselves to the holiness and obedience of Christ. I'm just going to give you guys a few examples and my prayer is that the Spirit would work to show you where you are divided in your own life. So I'm just trying to cast a large net, right? So just, uh, again, yet another disclaimer. Because the last thing, I grew up hearing, hearing preachers talk like this sometimes. Um, and I always thought that they were being very arrogant and acting like they had all their stuff together. And I'm like, dude, you're not nailing this. Like, you're just a self-righteous, arrogant punk. And that's the last thing that I want you guys to think this evening, right? So just disclaimer, I need to clean house on some of this stuff. Right? I, I am working on this too. And I'm not being a hypocrite from here on out just because I'm going to attempt to preach this with some conviction. Right? So I'm not being a hypocrite. I just want to bear that to you guys. I, I see the log in my own eye on some of these things. But nevertheless, truth needs preached. But whenever I think of, of not submitting ourselves in radical holiness and radical obedience to Christ, the, the very first thing, which this is the biggest thing in my life, the first thing that I think of is entertainment. Here's a hard question. How often do we entertain ourselves with things that God hates? And we won't submit them to Him. How often do we fill our hearts with absolute trash that glorifies sin? Like really, Like, think about this in your own life like, oh, and this, this hits real close to home, especially here, we're a church where we really like theology. We will scream and shout and denounce films like The Shack, which, by the way, I don't recommend you go see because there's just a lot of trash in it. But we will denounce films like The Shack and then turn around when we get home and fire up Netflix and, and, and be entertained by things that God killed Jesus for. Do you see the irony there? We'll decry certain things and then entertain ourselves with things that Christ died for. We'll listen to all kinds of music that glorifies a lifestyle that God abhors. That glorifies fornication and drug use and murder and violence and not forgiving your enemies and promiscuity. God abhors those things. Read the Bible. It's all over the place. And here's the best part. Maybe we don't partake in the sins that we are being entertained by, but we nevertheless, we are definitely entertained by them. And this shows a division between our pursuit of Christ and the vain pursuit of the world's pleasure. It shows a division in our hearts where on some level we actually desire those things or we would not find them entertaining. Would you find it entertaining to watch someone get their throat slit? No, because you wouldn't have a desire to slit anyone's throat. But why would we find something else sinful entertaining? Because a part of us still wants it. We're divided. Another area is Speech. We can look in the scriptures and see how Christ speaks in the Bible. We can see commands from Paul to build others up with our speech and to not speak corruptly and to not joke coarsely. And then we turn around and we'll gossip about people. We will tear people down with our words about them when they're not around. We will be completely foul in the way that we speak to one another. We will Absolutely partake in perverse jokes under the guise of Christian liberty, though Paul specifically tells us not to. That reveals a divided loyalty between speaking the words of God and the words that the world deems expect- or, I- acceptable. James, the, the half brother of Jesus, in his epistle, says that if we don't keep a rein on our tongue, then our religion is worthless because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's referencing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A third area is forgiveness. We can look to the Scriptures and see God's patience and love and forgiveness to us in Christ, and we extol the forgiveness of God, and we sing about it, and we relish in it, and we love it, and then we turn around and withhold forgiveness from others. We'll allow ourselves to stay bitter, even though we're told to put away bitterness, and we'll hold a grudge against other people, oftentimes other believers, and we'll make it about who was wrong. And we will demand to be paid back for how we were wronged. We'll demand recompense, which shows a division between our flesh demanding to be satisfied in God's way of love and forgiveness towards our enemies. Yet another way is in our money where we can look and see where God has commanded us to be generous and open-handed with what He's given us as we're able to do so To give cheerfully as God has gifted us to give, but then we will become afraid for our future and give in to greed and become cold and stingy towards those in need, which shows that we are divided between the world's wisdom concerning money and trusting in the providence of God to give us what we need. In sexual purity, we can see where Scripture demands us to avoid sexual immorality and lust and fornication and the like. And again, maybe we don't participate and partake in actual sex with another person, but we will go home and fire up the phone, the tablet, the laptop, and completely indulge ourselves with pornography. This shows a heart divided between the passions of the flesh and the purity that God demands from His people. Or then this one, husbands, this hurts. We can see in Scripture how God cares for his children. We can see how Christ loves his bride and cares for her. And then selfishly deny our families the same time, care, and love that we are commanded to give. Because we want our free time. Because we're tired. Because we feel as if God owes us some time to ourselves. Which shows a heart that is torn between selfishness, the flesh, and selflessness, the way that we see Christ loving his church. Truly, we are a divided people. Often we are not wholly devoted to the pursuit of Christ. And if I can just quote Elijah again how long will we limp between two opinions? How long? And the people of Israel were divided in loyalty between Yahweh and Baal because of their fear of a lack of rain, right? Which makes sense. They, they lived in an agricultural society. Baal is a storm god. So I think that their, that their mentality was, hey, we're going to hedge our bets here, right? Like if Yahweh won't send rain, maybe Baal will. So we're going to worship this false god in addition to the living god what I'm getting at in saying that, that their reason was a fear of a lack of rain, uh, what I'm getting at is there is a reason behind our divided loyalty to God. It doesn't just happen out of nowhere. There's a reason behind it. And, and, and it may be for a number of different reasons, but I thought about like three pretty big ones that, that came to mind pretty quickly. Um, so again, it could be much deeper than this. Uh, man, the the first one, just like the entertainment one, um, smacked me and I think is is incredibly relevant to our church. I think... Arguably, the, the biggest reason, at least specific to, to this body of believers, the biggest reason, I think, for us that, that we won't wholeheartedly commit ourselves to Christ in all areas of our life is that we have a horrible, dread fear of being called irrelevant. <laughs> which really means we just fear what people think of us, which is the cardinal sin in the church in the West. Is to be irrelevant. Like we we are terrified of being called a Puritan, which would actually be one of the greatest compliments that anyone could possibly give you. Have you read The Puritans, right? That'd be awesome. Right? But we are scared to death of being called a Puritan. Like we do not want people to think that we are overzealous in following Jesus. Right? We don't want to be like one of those people. One of those Puritan people who, who doesn't have any fun, doesn't partake in anything. We don't want to be seen that way. I think often we want to be seen as like that mellow, pretty cool, with it, hip Christian. We want to be viewed as, as, as pretty mellow in our following Christ. So we're scared to death to actually submit all areas of our life to Jesus because we know that that's going to have some radical change. There are going to be things that we have to give up. Likewise, things that, well, the habits that we must pick up. And just again, this is a side note maybe. Somewhere along the way, I don't know know when it happened. It was before I was born. Uh, But I think somewhere along the way, we have began to believe that striving for holiness and refusing to partake in or do certain things that have the potential to pollute our hearts is being a legalist. We've began to think that. That if I abstain from certain things, that makes me a legalist. That if I won't pursue certain pleasures, if you will, that that, that's being a legalist. And that's not the case. Holiness is not legalism. Just because you refuse to watch something or refuse to listen to something or refuse to go somewhere does not mean you're being a legalist. Unless you're doing it to try to save yourself. Or you're developing a self-righteous attitude in doing so. But the raw act of committing yourself to holiness is not legalism. But again, we are scared to death to have people look at us differently because we've drawn a line in the sand on certain things. But God says in the Old and New Testament, come out from among them and be separate. But I think another reason, and these will be much shorter, I believe that, that, that we're afraid to completely submit our lives to Christ because we, in our heart, believe that total submission to Christ will rob us of joy. This is real. Like, this is, this is real, real. Right? Like, this thought that says if I give up certain things that I enjoy right now and begin new habits and devote my life to a new way of thinking and a new way of living, I won't be as happy because those things make me happy. So, we're afraid to give up things that, that pollute our hearts. We're afraid to give ourselves over because we're afraid that without those things in our life, we will no longer have joy. And lastly, I think that we won't submit ourselves completely to Christ in all areas because we don't really see sin for what it is. The Puritans would say we don't see sin as exceedingly sinful. <laughs> I don't think we really see sin for what it is. Which then means that we don't see grace as what it is. And we don't see sin as completely vile, so we don't see grace as Amazing. Therefore, we don't see divided loyalty as that big of a deal. We don't see sin as wretched, so we're not stunned by the fact that God loved us in spite of our sin. Which leads us to think that a half-hearted devotion is really acceptable because we only half-heartedly believe the gospel. I think really all of these reasons boil down to unbelief. That's the heart of it. It really boils down to unbelief. For, for, the, for the first one that we, that we talked about, uh, that we, uh, we fear the world, we don't really believe that God's opinion and standard is what truly matters above everything else. It's unbelief. For afraid that following Christ wholeheartedly will take joy from us, then we don't really believe that God is the source of joy. And that as the psalmist says, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. or not seeing sin for what it is, and not seeing grace as what it is, we show that we really don't believe certain aspects of the gospel. We may believe it in part, but there are aspects of it that have not hit us in the heart, and it's stuck in our head. And sometimes it can be a long path from the heart to the head. But what's God's response to this unbelief and disloyalty? Well... (laughs) It's righteous anger. It's judgment. It's wrath. God sent a drought. People died. This was judgment from God. I'm sure that the nation went into into pretty much a state of anarchy at times. This is judgment from God. Which really points us to the greater reality of eternal punishment in hell for those who do not repent of this undivided loyalty. Again, all physical judgment on Israel in the Old Testament, I think most of it at least, points us to the greater reality of eternal punishment. But why does God respond in such a harsh way to a divided loyalty? Well, simply put, because divided loyalty is not loyalty. It's spiritual adultery. Just think about it this way. If I'm loyal to Autumn, and I see you sitting back there and this is not true. If I'm loyal to Autumn 95% of the time... I am an adulterer. You feel me on that? Right. Likewise, if we are half-hearted in our devotion to Christ, we are spiritual adulterers. That is like one of God's number one charges that He levels at Israel in the Old Testament. But we see it in, in, in the New Testament as well. James chapter 4, verse 4. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus Christ Himself says that we cannot serve two masters. Matthew six twenty four No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We can replace God and whatever that area is that I refuse to submit to Christ. So essentially we see in the scriptures where, where Christ himself and the Father in the Old Testament. Pick one. Pick one. Pick one. The world or Jesus. Yourself or Jesus. The passions of the flesh or Jesus. Pick one. God demands complete allegiance and obedience that comes from the heart. We must pick one. I hope. I hope at this point that that we can all see that we have not been loyal. That we have not given to God what is rightfully His. And that's everything. He owns us. Especially those of us who profess to be Christians. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. I hope we can see where we've not given to God what belongs to Him. Believer. I hope that you can see what areas in your life that you have not yet submitted to Christ and see the righteous indignation of God towards you, calling you a whore for this. And an unbeliever, if you're here and you're not a Christian. I hope that you can see that you have no loyalty to God at all. And that hell genuinely awaits you if you do not repent. Repent. And by the way, when I say Christian, I don't mean that you just profess to be a Christian. I mean someone who has turned from their sin, wholeheartedly trusted in the gospel of God, and is following Jesus daily in repentance and faith. If that is not you, then you are an unbeliever. The last thing I want is is for anyone to leave this church and think that they're a Christian when they're not. It's one of those damning things that we see in, in most churches. I hope we can see. I hope we can see our sin. Hope we can see the judgment of God. But the turnaround <laughs> thanks be to God, the story does not end with God's judgment. God tells Elijah, Go see King Ahab, the drought is going to end. The grace of God is shown in that he calls his people to and back to himself. That God does not abandon his people in their sin. And this is a gospel truth that we have to hold on to. God does not abandon them in their sin. Likewise, he does not abandon his church in our sin. God calls Israel to repentance and faith in the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's what he's doing. So if I can sum it up like this, the the people of Israel needed reminded of who God is. They needed something to warm their hearts toward God so that they would no longer be divided. So God sent fire to warm their hearts. He displayed His greatness to them so that they could see, so that they would repent, so that they would have complete devotion to Him alone. Elijah says in in his prayer, let them know that You, Lord, are God and that You have turned their hearts back. That's why God did this, to turn their hearts back. And we need the same. So please, I hope you haven't been misunderstanding me this evening. I, I, am not, I am not saying try harder and do better or perish because you did not try hard enough and you were not good enough. That is not what I'm talking about. It is not a mere external act of obedience that we need. Right? The Pharisees did that. The Pharisees externally obeyed the law. They were externally very zealous. But the 50th Psalm tells us that God wants a heart of thanks. He says, I do not need your sacrifices. I desire a heart of thanksgiving, of thankfulness. We need our hearts tuned to grace. We need our hearts warmed and our affections stoked to love God more. Which means that we need to reflect on God in the Gospel. And I used to think whenever I heard preachers say stuff like this, when I was a a, a new convert, that the gospel is the remedy to all of our spiritual problems. I used to think that was just, just, yeah, that sounds great. It's the truth, though. The gospel is the remedy for all of our spiritual coldness and all of our unbelief. So let's just consider some some aspects of the Gospel, right? Consider this, that our chasing the world and its pleasure and its approval set us at enmity with God. But that God chose to redeem us Himself by the work of Christ in our place, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve and living a perfectly righteous life in our place so that He could make us righteous with His own righteousness. Consider that. We set ourselves as enemies and hostile to God, but God chose to save us by the work of another. How then could we continue to seek the world if our seeking the world is the thing that put us at enmity with God? Consider that God gave up His beloved Son in order to save you. His perfect Son. And He punished Him in your place. How then could we believe that God would withhold any true joy from us? To paraphrase Paul in Romans 8, if God did not spare His Son, He will not spare anything else from us. How could we think that He would rob us of joy? Consider that God loved and saved us, though we are worthless, though we are vile, though we are helpless, and though we are unlovable. That He redeemed us. How could we not love Him beyond compare with a heart of gratitude? Remember what you once were before you came to Christ and consider God loved you in spite of that. How could we not love Him back? How, how, how dare we grow spiritually cold? But if we really begin to reflect on God's grace in saving us through Christ, we will lay all other allegiances aside in order to follow Him and know Him more. All right, so this is my final point. I've just got a few minutes left. How does this point to Christ? Well, obviously, you've seen, in part, how this points us to Christ. But I'm just going to sum the story up again. The people turned from God. God sent fire, a miracle, to show them that He is God and that He should be followed above all else. And in a much greater way, God raised Jesus from the dead, to quote the Apostle Peter, to show that He is both Lord and Christ, That He is God, in other words. So if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then follow Him. If not, then don't. But we know, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but we know that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So we must follow Him. So again, I'm not saying follow perfectly or perish in hell, right? That is the antithesis of the gospel. Right? I'm not saying do better or go to hell. I'm not saying nail it perfectly or go to hell because the gospel is that we are not saved by what we do, but we are saved by what Christ has already done in our place. So that's not what I'm, I'm preaching. But, but nevertheless, if we truly believe then God has given us the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us that we might pursue Christ. I, I love this about Jesus. I, I, <laughs> I, I love this about Jesus. That Jesus tells us, repent and believe the gospel. And come, follow me. So again, that's, I, say, I say this like almost every week for a month. It's just like the present perfect tense. It means, do this and keep doing this, keep repenting, keep believing, keep following. Jesus knows that following him is going to be full of failure. He knows it's going to be full of sin and full of disloyalty, but Jesus keeps calling to us, repent, believe, follow me. He doesn't abandon us in our sin. He says, repent and believe that I have made you right with God and continue to follow me. So the question is not, are you nailing this 100% of the time? That is not the question. The question is, are you striving to follow him? That's really the question. Are you repenting and believing and following daily? Because if we have been converted, we must keep pursuing him. Furthermore, thank God we are saved by the work of Christ and not our own. Like we sing in, in, in the hymn, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. We have no hope apart from Christ. Thank God for the gospel. So to sum this up, if you have been, rather, if you have Divided loyalty in your life, and that's all of us. (laughs) If you have divided loyalty in your life, we must all repent and believe the gospel and keep following Jesus. And when our affections for Christ aren't what they should be, which is often, we must warm our hearts with the fire from heaven that is the gospel of God and really reflect on it. Jesus is God. He has bought us by his blood, and we must follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being merciful to us, though we don't deserve it. For showing us grace that we cannot measure, and that you don't abandon us whenever we commit spiritual adultery against you, but that you just call us back to yourself saying, repent and believe and follow. Thank you for that. Holy Spirit, please give the believers in this room wholehearted devotion to your Son that we might live differently, that we might speak differently and love differently and give differently, that we would be completely different from the unbeliever. God, help us to be holy as you are holy. Spirit, please draw an unbeliever to yourself. and Let them see the standards of the law. That-